Welcome to the Ice Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. The recent events with Silicon Valley Bank have been dramatic and concerning to all those in the venture capital industry. Today I discussed what has happened and what the consequences for investors and companies are. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or follow the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harvardandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today, this is going to be a solo chat from me. Recent events with Silicon Valley Bank have been rather dramatic. I think we are past the worst, and I certainly hope we are. Uh, But uh, it's definitely worth looking at what has happened um, and what might change, and maybe it might be reassuring to investors and perhaps some companies about what's going on. So this has been the biggest US bank failure since 2008, and it also has implications in the UK because there was a UK subsidiary. Uh, usually at this point, I would introduce a guest. I have no guest today. Uh, and part of the reason for that is that in my past, uh, I'm sure regular listeners know I used to be a fund manager. And one of the things I used to uh, specialize in was looking at financial companies and banks in particular. So I have looked at a lot of banks, a lot of bank balance sheets, and seen banks go through several crises. So hopefully I'm well positioned, both as an experienced analyst of venture capital funds and as someone who analyzes banks to give some insight and explanation of what went on. Before I get into the details, I'll start with one caveat. I'm recording this on Wednesday the 15th of March. I'm doing this with the best information I have at the time. There may well be some things that come out subsequent to this recording that contradict or update um, what I understand what's going on. So if that has happened, I apologize. But I think we've got a pretty good idea now. So it's perhaps worth giving a brief history of Silicon Valley Bank. Obviously, it's a US bank based in California, in Silicon Valley, strangely enough. It was actually founded way back in 1983, focusing on on its current ethos. It actually got into trouble in the 1990s with lots of property lending, and it sort of got its fingers burnt and stepped back from that and refocused on startups. It boomed again with the internet bubble, and then everything fell back again. Um, Although it took TARP money in 2007, 2008, it didn't seem to be terribly troubled, um, certainly compared to a lot of other banks. And it it has continued to trade pretty consistently. It's primarily a corporate bank. It does do some high net worth stuff, but that's generally sort of related to startups. It's got a really strong market share. So I haven't found an up-to-date figure, but in 2015, it estimated that it had relationships with 65% of all US startups. I would guess that's probably, if anything, gone higher. It's got a lot of support from venture capitalists, in the, particularly in Silicon Valley, which is where everything's concentrated there. And a lot of managers, apparently, were saying to clients when they raise money, just stick it in Silicon Valley Bank, partially because that would help single bank relationships help keep more control. As a bank, it has grown really quickly in the last few years. So a couple of figures. In 2019, it had about $71 billion of assets. That's essentially loans or uh, investments and deposits of 62 billion. At the end of 2022, that had risen to 212 billion of assets and 173 billion of deposits, making it the 16th largest bank in the US. So, effectively, over the space of three years, it had trebled, which is a really remarkable growth rate. And the reasons for that aren't hard to find. Basically, we've all seen the boom in venture capital fundraising, particularly in the US, Series A, B, C, D, whatever letter you want to say, 
high valuations, high amounts of money being raised, lots of venture capitalists, as I said, saying to the companies, right, you've got the money, stick it into Silicon Valley Bank. That's who we have a good relationship. So lots of money went to Silicon Valley Bank and hence the gross of deposits. It, it was primarily a US bank in the UK. It had about 8 billion deposits out of what apparently was 14 billion of overseas. So it's not a trivial bank, but if we compare it with the big clearers who have balance sheets into trillions uh, and similarly in the US, um, the likes of Chase or, or Bank of America have balance sheets of trillions of dollars. It wasn't huge, but still significant. What was interesting was that if you look at the sort of accounts, the profitability was fine, the capital metrics seem okay. Basically, there was no reason to think that this was a bank that had any issues. I think the one caveat on that would be, obviously, it's tied intimately to what's going on in Silicon Valley. It's been through a boom time. While we're not quite in a bust, clearly things are going to be more challenging. So I think you know the expectation probably would be that profitability for this was, was not going to get any better in the near future. And I think you know, corporate banking, corporate finance fees were probably going to be weaker because there'll be less IPOs, less SPACs, that sort of thing. But basically, it was a bank that, for all intents and purposes, seemed to be doing pretty well. However, this fast asset growth actually turned out to be the root of the problem. So it got all this money in from deposits and needed to invest that somewhere. Now, there has been a general shortage of demand for lending. That's quite true across US generally, but in venture capital in particular. And it's kind of the flip side of the equity fundraising, where Silicon Valley Bank essentially gives loans, and equity financing was not quite free, but certainly generously available. So most startups in the US were well equity funded, had lots of equity, no problem raising money, um, and they didn't need to make loans. It did have a book of venture, venture loans, but um, it wasn't growing as anything like the same rate as the global deposits. So it needed to invest these somewhere. Now, if we go back to sort of 2017, 2018, it primarily invested these in short-term deposits um, in sort of low-risk assets. Now, these basically yielded almost nothing. You know, we've been in a sort of zero interest rate circumstances for a decade. So investing in short-term deposits didn't earn very much. In 2019, 2021, they decided that they were going to uh, move up the maturity curve a bit. So they, they decided to keep investing in U.S. Treasuries and U.S. mortgage-backed securities, which had very, very low credit risk. So in terms of losing money from sort of failures, the chances were really quite low. But to gain extra yield, they decided to make the invest in longer securities. So it went out on the yield curve, which is sort of maturity transformation, as it's sometimes known. And it bought essentially 10-year bonds, Probably have brought a variety, but certainly the, you know, the, the, the typical amount that, or typical term that's talked about is 10 years. And the idea was really it was going to hold these maturities so that even if the market prices sort of fluctuated, it didn't have a need for the cash. It was just going to keep holding these. So in actual fact, in some ways, it didn't view market or, or, or market value fluctuations as being that severe. And that was perhaps part of the, the problem. So... I think we all know kind of what's happened. So since 2021, interest rates have gone up. US probably quicker than some other places. 
And that has led to big losses on their uh, bond portfolio. So at the end of 2022, they apparently had about $15 billion of bond losses. And that in itself wasn't, didn't seem to be a problem. As I say, at the end of 2022, everything was adequately capitalized. There's no absolutely no sign that it couldn't take these losses and ha have inadequate uh, and have any problems. And certainly there was no signs of regulators, no sign of action anywhere else. However, we do have to ask if their risk management function was asleep at the wheel here, really, in the sense that interest rates rising has been far from the biggest surprise. We've known it's coming. The Fed has been really clear that it's going to keep raising rates and it's going to keep raising rates relatively quickly. Now, it may well be that you may take the view that it's all priced in, you might be optimistic, whatever. But at the same time, you are taking, if you're investing in 10-year bonds, you're taking a fair amount of risk by doing that. It's a few years ago, I was actually at a presentation for the retail bond market in in London. And there was a, a, a panel with three fund managers, and they all actually said the same thing, which was really frustrating in that. They were concerned that interest rates might rise. This was five or six years ago, so clearly they, they, they were wrong at the time. But So they didn't really want to invest in long bonds to get the yield because they were worried of the exposure that might rise. Now, the cynic in me might say they're paid to sort of call that right and they call that wrong. But at the same time, it's a very understandable risk mitigation in that if you have any concern about interest rates rising, you do not want to be invested in long maturity uh, instruments. You want to take your uh, exposure short. Um, so that, you know, if you've got stuff that has six months or one year maturity, it rolls over and you reinvest at the higher interest rate if, if it appears. And if it doesn't appear, then actually you haven't lost that much. So, so certainly it appears risk management was asleep at the wheel. So nevertheless, it would appear that Silicon Valley Bank decided that it needed to raise a bit more capital. And this is where the second mistake and perhaps the fatal mistake actually came in. So it started to make arrangements to raise some more money. About 1.75 billion has been what's quoted, and that was subsequently abandoned. So that actually didn't happen in the end. However, I think the real mistake seems to be that it kind of announced in advance that it was going to do this. And that raised some concerns. And there were some venture capitalists um, who out there who decided that clearly there was a small risk there. Probably not that this was a definite failure, but there was some risk deposits. So they maybe thought, well, let's get ahead of the curve. If we've got companies that are excessively concentrated in the banking, perhaps if Silicon Valley Bank is their only banking uh, relationships, then maybe it might be prudent to take some or maybe even all of their deposits and shift them across to another bank. So you've got either diversification risk or you're in a bank that's there's less risk. And this is what essentially caused the run. And the key issue underlying this seems to be that Silicon Valley Bank actually had a very concentrated deposit base. As I said, it was a corporate bank. So it didn't have lots of people like you and me with 1,000 or 10,000 or whatever you have on deposit. It had corporates and particularly startups, or not so much startups, but fast-growing companies with big deposits. So in the US, we know that bank guarantees or the federal government or the, uh, through, through the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, guarantees deposit up to $250,000. 
And we know, I've seen figures of three or four, but certainly less than 5% of SVB's deposits were actually covered by this guarantee. So that tells you that vast majority of deposits were really pretty big. So it wouldn't take many people, or certainly withdrawals by many uh, of the depositors to actually create a run. Now actually, there was a big amount. So by 39th of March, was basically the last day it was open, apparently there had been claims for redemptions or withdrawals of $42 billion. Now remember, at the end of 2022, they had 173 billion of deposits. So what's that? That's about a quarter, just under a quarter of deposits being withdrawn. That is a hell of a lot. Certainly, banks are required to have minimum liquidity requirements, and typically they're required to hold a minimum of 30 days liquidity in liquid. So that'll be overnight deposits, liquid instruments, cash. So that anything that they expect to usually get over the next month, they have re in ready available assets. Trying to withdraw corporate deposits would strain pretty much any financial institution or any bank, I think. So, what else have we heard? It would seem that social media and the electronic withdrawals have been cited as influential in facilitating this. So, if anyone in the UK in particular remembers the financial crisis, you remember the queues outside Northern Rock as everybody went along to try and get their cash out of the bank. And that was a typical bank run, as, as anyone remembers from seeing It's a Wonderful Life, that classic Christmas film, which has a superb explanation towards the end of fractional banking. You have this idea that the banks generally have a lot of money lent out and they only need to carry a certain amount of money to, to satisfy day-to-day -day management of satisfying withdrawals and, and account holders who wish to, wish to withdraw money. So it would seem that social media and electronic withdrawals so electronic withdrawals, A, obviate the need to actually go and stand outside the bank and queue. It also means banks are open all hours. And social media can also stir up a frenzy. And now, the role of social media is unclear. I don't know if this is just something where people have jumped on the bandwagon or not. Certainly, I was listening to Jason Kalkanis, who is a very high-profile Silicon Valley investor. And he was noting over the weekend that actually, if you think about it, who knows about what's going on? The regulator, the FDIC, and people who work in the bank. What were they doing over the weekend? They were trying to sort this out. They were not on Twitter publicizing what actually was the situation, what was going on. So much of what was going on social media was absolutely pure speculation. Nobody really had a, well, informed people probably had a clue, but you have no idea who you're listening to, if they're formed or not. And certainly I've seen comments from people who I think should know better, in the, in the media, and I'm thinking, did you really want to say that? Did you really, you really sure that's really what was going on? Now, sometimes these are quoted out of context, so maybe give them that credit. But certainly, a lot of what happened on social media was scaremongering, in essence. And that has had influences elsewhere. So, a little bit of factual thing, what actually happened? So, on Friday, 10th of March, which as I'm recording was last Friday, the FDIC, which is Federal Deposit Insurance Corporate, stepped in and took over the bank. Now, they have standard procedures for doing this. There's been, over the years, there's been many, many bank fails in the US. It's a very fragmented banking system. There are thousands of banks. It's nothing like what we've got in the UK. So what we have is a well-established and well 
routine procedure that actually satisfies, in the most of the cases, the very smooth sort of taking over and resolving of difficult bank situations. So they did, went in and did what their standard playbook is, was firstly, they froze all the accounts, and that obviously creates a problem because any companies with deposits or any companies need to draw on credit lines, they suddenly couldn't. And that's why people were sort of running away. Now, obviously what happens, you don't know how long that's going to be for. Now we've got a pretty good idea, but at the time, you didn't know how long it was going to be. And if you and if you close on Friday and on Monday you want to meet your payroll, you can't. And that's a problem. So it's not something to take lightly. This time, they fired the management. Clearly, management screwed up here, so management were fired. Over the weekend, and if you look at what the FDIC do, they always go in like a Thursday night or a Friday, and that then gives them the weekend to try and resolve things. So the first thing they generally do is they try and find a buyer for the bank, which is what they did with Silicon Valley Bank. And if that doesn't work, they effectively take it over and run it themselves. So in this case, they couldn't find a buyer for Silicon Valley Bank in the US. Uh, we'll come back to UK in a minute. So they, they set up a shell company. Assets from SVB were transferred into the shell company that's run by the FDIC. And that allowed it. So by uh, Wednesday, which is today, the US said that they are now sort of opening up and people can access deposits or existing credit lines. What was interesting was on Sunday, the US government said that the FDIC would stand behind all the deposits, not just the ones that are guaranteed, which is up to 250000 but all deposits. Now, there's some reasons we'll do that, but I think that's a little bit controversial, and I'm going to come back to that shortly. In the UK, very similar events happened. Obviously, Silicon Valley Bank in the UK was much smaller, so perhaps less systematic concerns. Nevertheless, Bank of England also shut its doors on Friday 10th of March, so undoubtedly in coordinated action. Uh, we understand on Saturday morning, it solicited bids from all the banks it could find in the UK, and that came down to a short list of three, we understand, which is HSBC, Oak North, and Bank of London. So that is a new bank. It's backed by some private equity people or private equity funds or managers, and it was sort of in there sort of trying to raise the money. In the end, it was bought on Monday by HSBC for £1. So that is the typical nominal thing where something sort of, in some sense, bankrupt. It wasn't without its hiccups. So apparently NatWest ran the payments. So not all banks in the UK are clearers. So, so payments some, sometimes have to, for the, some of these smaller banks, actually still run through the large clearing banks. So NatWest ran the payment systems and shut them off. They had to get those running. SCB UK's operations ran on the US parent systems, which was obviously subject to what was going on in the US. Um, so that had to be sorted out. But um, I think the important thing, and, and Jeremy Hunt quoted... To a, a little tweet about this. He was obviously working the weekend as well, which is very good of him uh, in the weekend before the budget. Well, not very good of him. He damn well should be. But, uh, and, and he was highlighting that deposits will be protected with no taxpayer support. So basically, HSBC took over the bank and were standing behind things. And it looked like SCB UK accounts were basically sound. So all the losses were in the US parents or... Um, if there were losses, they didn't hadn't actually got down to level, let like they reduce the capital and 
in pensions deposits. So rumour has it the government was considering whether they might have to guarantee deposits or not, and who knows what the rumours where the rumours are right. Rumours are they were leaning towards doing that, like the US, but in the end they didn't have to. So in some ways that's uh, best for everybody. So what effect has this had on startups in the UK? So as everybody knows, I do a lot of work with EIS funds, VCTs, and uh, I, I, I work for a company that we still do work in quote markets. So we're, we're very well connected as to what's going on. And as even some investors have probably received emails from the managers as well, saying what the effect has been on their assets or their funds. Now, the good news is that SCB's market share was actually quite small. I don't know what it was among startups in particular, but my back then about calculation, it was well under 10%, going by the figures that I'm seeing from managers. So most companies are actually completely unaffected by this. That's the good news. There's also quite a number of companies that banked with SVB, but it was not their sole banker. So they had bank arrangements with other companies, with other banks. So even if the account with SVB was suspended, they still had access to funds and could still run until that was resolved. There's a much smaller number, um, and I don't know how many this is, but definitely some that had Silicon Valley Bank as their sole banker. Clearly, they have more potential problems uh, or potentially had more problems with that. Some managers, particularly those that had a broad range of funds, talked about lining up some bridging supports for companies that are in that situation. So some of those companies, they had managers who perhaps they had loan funds. Some, some of them got involved in the C-bills and various other lines of government support before. Some have debt funds. Some just have sort of funds with broader remits or in some cases, so quote companies like Mercer or Moulton in theory have a pool of money that belongs to PLC that they could allocate as they wish. And they were, they were in some cases lining up bridging support in case a company needed it to meet payroll or whatever until funds were released from deposits. I haven't seen a single manager who said that this will actually have a meaningful effect on the portfolio. And I don't see any reason why that will change. Some managers were banking with SVB themselves. I've seen a couple of comments to that effect. One had an exclusive arrangement, and that's clearly been, in the short term, probably a panic for them. I haven't hassled them by speaking to them, but I suspect they have had a very concerned weekend. In practice, HSBC taking over is probably the best, in terms of releasing speed of releasing accounts, was probably the best options. They've got a big operation, they've got big systems, they can throw resources at it. So getting things up and running and opening accounts and really allowing the account holders to actually use them again can happen pretty quickly. In practice, I think for most investors, even if there'd been an extended delay in freezing accounts, the actual effect on investments would have been de minimis. I don't think we would have seen a really big effect on funds. For most companies that would be a situation, what you'd have is a few missed payments. Um, and if you have the situation where you, you believe the accounts are going to be released soon, most people would be um, would accept the delay. There might be a small cost with the occasional late payment cost charge, but I doubt there would be very much of that. 
you know, I, I think in the US, it's been harder for them. I think without a buyer there, it's not been clear what would happen to the deposits and when things would be open again. Now, actual fact, there was an announcement this morning, so this is the Wednesday 15th, that um, everything's released again. So there's been a delay for everything's been shut for sort of six days. So it's, it's not been terrible. I think it's conceivable that there is a company out there that might have been pushed over the edge by this. Uh, I haven't heard of one. And if we can describe the circumstances, I think that would cause that. I think that any such company was probably likely to fail anyway. So I don't think it was actually change any outcomes. It might just have tipped something over the edge that was today that was actually going to fail in two weeks or something. So I don't think this will actually have had any net effect on accounts. I think what's happening in the wider economy and wider environment perhaps has some other things worth sort of talking about. So I mentioned earlier in the US, the federal government guaranteed the deposits. And the real reason it did this, like we think, or I think certainly, is not SVB in itself, but SVB is actually the third bank to close in two weeks. So what we saw um, two weeks ago was a bank called Silvergate, which apparently actually worked in the crypto space. Now, it didn't get forcibly wound up. It decided to wind itself up. But basically, the problem was the same. It had big losses on US Treasuries, and it's, in essence, it was, struggle, it was struggling to raise capital. I mean, crypto, the, the phase crypto winter has been thrown around. So presumably, capital raising capital would not have been very easy for it. Over the same weekend that SVB failed, a commercial bank in New York called Signature Bank also failed. And again, it, it, it's, it's not totally clear with that one. It hasn't received simple but it looks like rising interest rate caused similar sorts of issues for those. What we have seen over the past sort of couple of weeks is the share price of US regional banks have been very weak. There's been speculation that there might be contagion, there might be bank runs from these, and probably what, what, why, the reason why the US federal government took, took this step of guaranteed deposit was that there seemed to be wider concerns. They were concerned about runs on other banks, and they took this step to sort of say, well, okay, here's something where it looks like the cost will be small, and perhaps even nothing. We're not even sure actually whether SDB couldn't cover its deposits or not, but it will stop concerns about other banks. And certainly we've seen the share prices of other regional banks bounce back in the last sort of day or two. And that kind of suggests that uh, certainly the stock market is less concerned about that. And hopefully that means there is less likely to be runs of people feel that their deposits are under control. So while there's some adverse commentary about our... So the FDIC is funded by fees to banks. So And in theory, the riskier banks pay bigger fees. So there has been sort of some talk as the FDIC effectively going to be bailing out Silicon Valley bros sort of thing. The answer is possibly what it looks like is that if that happens, it's not going to cost them very much, I suspect. They kind of got in in the nick of time, had everything gone really bad, and they waited another week. I suspect things would have been a lot worse because, yes, if Silicon Valley Bank had to do forced liquidations of some of its assets, that might have caused problems. And then suddenly it's into its, its actual loan book, not just the sort of commercial assets that it held. 
So, so this step is still controversial, I think. And people talk about moral hazard. And basically, the problem with moral hazard is that people will take risk behavior and then the government picks up the tab. So the government seems the backstop. And I think in this case, most depositors are sort of kind of either venture capitalists, US venture capitalists, or they're seen in some sense as controlled by venture capitalists, or certainly influenced, because it was venture capitalists that told them to deposit the money back there. And frankly, these guys are grown-ups. And I say guys, there's some girls there as well, so I should just use that. But these are not sort of private investors. These are not people who you could consider not financially sophisticated. These know what they're doing. They're, they're big boys and girls. They can take, they should be able to take a loss. So we shouldn't be sort of covering these losses. And that's kind of the moral, moral hazard argument. The Fed obviously took the view that actually stopping contagion was a much stronger stronger thing to, to, to look at. I think in this case, this is somewhat different from what we saw in sort of 2007, 2008. So obviously, failures, people are already starting to make that analogy. Are we in another 2007, 2008, a great financial crisis? I think this so far, I say so far, we, we don't know what's going to happen, but there's been no sense of connectedness. So I think the real problem in the Great Financial Group was when one bank fell over, there was a lots of cross-holdings and there was a contagion actually mechanically through other banks because they defaulted and with other banks, so other banks were suddenly making losses. In this case, it appears to be purely a sentiment issue. Silicon Valley Bank does not appear to be deeply connected and intertwined with other banks in the same way that we had at the issues in the financial crisis. So that suggests this should stop now. So there doesn't seem to be an immediate risk of further bank failures. I think it's perhaps worth saying that a couple of focus highlighted, these have been the first US bank failures this year. If I look back over my uh, finance career, going back to 1990s, to get a period that you're into the middle of March before you have a bank failure in the US is actually exceptional. It's usual in the US that you have a steady flow of bank failures. As I say, there's a huge number of banks. Every now and then one gets mismanaged, concentrated loan books, whatever. So there's usually a steady flow of bank failures in the US. We've actually been used to a period that's unusually benign. So the return to having one or two failures, albeit one is now the 16th largest, is actually more return to normal. Obviously, if the economy slows then in the US, then there's perhaps more of a risk. In the US, I think the chance of contagion are pretty much nil. Obviously, HCB is stepped in and sorted out. Silicon Valley Bank UK was really relatively small in the great scheme of things. There doesn't seem to be any real risks of contagion in the UK. So I, I think that, you know, there's no, just no risk of UK bank runs from that. Um, you'll see headlines about Credit Suisse at the moment as well. Credit Suisse is a basket case, has been for some time. If it falls over, what's happened recently probably has very little or nothing to do with it. It's just, it's a mess. But don't worry about that. So apart from the sort of effect on, on companies, sort of startups, there's been one or two other interesting effects. So the one that's sort of cropped up, or caught, certainly caught my eye a couple of times, has been issues in crypto. So a company called Circle runs USDC, which is a stable coin. And the idea of a stable coin is that basically one USDC equals one US dollar. And Circle holds assets to back that. So it's, it's effectively sort of saying, like, 
a money market fund with one with the pool of assets, he actually equals the number of dollars out there. About 8% of his assets, which is about $3.3 billion, were deposited with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, obviously, looking up, that created concern because suddenly, in one sense, people were worried that that means 8% of Circle's assets are going to disappear. So 8% of the assets backing USB DDC might suddenly not be available. That triggered a bit of a fall in crypto markets. Again, it was temporary. It seems to bounce back now. Etsy also, I see, had some pay- delays in payments through Silicon Valley Bank. I would imagine they'll be resolved pretty quickly. What I think is really interesting about this is that SVB's business model didn't actually fail here. Its core business, which is sort of taking money from startups, providing corporate services to startups, and lending out primarily in venture debt. So that is debt to startups, which is typically loans, plus you get warrants or, or loans that are convertibles. Its failure was in its normal capital management activities. So that's, again, where were the risk management team in that? I think the challenge for the venture capital environment system is that, in essence, it was probably the only bank doing this. No other bank was doing this. And that does raise some questions. So it's perhaps the reason why nobody was willing to buy SCB US, because actually most banks are not interested in that venture debt uh, portfolio. In the UK, it makes it wonder if HSBC is the best long-term home. In the short term, absolutely, it'll get stuff sorted out. It's got the capital, it'll, it'll resolve it. But Silicon Valley Bank is doing this because the big UK clearers were not interested. Is HSBC suddenly interested in, in making these sort of venture debts supporting this ecosphere? Maybe, but history would suggest maybe not. I think we're going to see a continued growth in alternative lenders. Clearly, they don't have the potential for runs or can't certainly can't suffer a run the same way. Wholesale funding could cause that, but it's, it's very only if they do mismatching. And if they're sensible, they will have better matching of wholesale funding. So they'll have longer term wholesale funding to match any debt they're making. Clearly, we're in an environment where accessibility to capital for venture capital companies is weaker overall. And this will feed into that to some extent. SVB was a significant, le- it, w- it w- wasn't the only lender of venture debt, but it was a significant lender of venture debt. And taking that out of the market in a time when equity funding is also reducing, capital is just going to be uh, less available. And obviously, I referred earlier to loan growth being weak across the certainly US economy as a whole. Uh, if it's loan growth weak, that probably suggests less demand deposits. So chances of someone buying SVP just for the deposits perhaps is reduced. So I'm not really sure what will happen to SVP US. Um, it may well be the FDIC will just run it off in due course. And that will leave a gap in the market, which might actually be filled because if, if SVP's business model didn't fail, then maybe someone else might give it a go. And maybe someone else might come in and try and pick up some of the, the assets of SVP to do that without picking the whole bank. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see that. I think for startup companies, what's longer-term consequences? Well, I think the obvious one is that companies will start to increasingly look at having multiple banking arrangements. I think especially once you're big enough. So if, if, you, if you're a real startup um, or maybe you, you, know, you precede funding, then maybe you're not big enough. But, but certainly by the time you get to sort of Series A where you, you're gaining or you're getting revenue of uh, half a million, a million pounds a year, you probably should be thinking about a second banking arrangement just as default. 
with a minimum of one or two months payroll in it. I think certainly we'll see that that's going to be sort of, I think, de rigueur in the US. In the UK, it's perhaps a bit different. We have a very concentrated banking market. And certainly, it's, you know, we've got the four large clearers. We've got NatWest, Barclays, HSBC, and Lloyd's. Frankly, it's difficult to imagine circumstances where one of them gets in trouble where the others aren't in trouble at the same time. <laughs> That's quite scary. We've got a slew of new entrants, Metro Bank, Starling Bank, all these sort of companies. It may well be that they do not get the same level of business. Um, so people may say, well, actually, I'm going to use Metro Bank or Starling Bank as my primary, but I'm going to have a big clearer as a backup. But I, I think that would kind of be prudent. I think there's some things out there that we still don't know. And I, I've got some questions. So my first question is, why was risk management there such a screw-up? Clearly, interest rates were going up. They didn't just have to sell assets. They could do hedges. They could do all sorts of things. They could even have quietly gone to the San Francisco Fed Reserve and probably actually raised money to cover things in the short term. I, I don't know what happened. Something happened in there, and it sounds like there was gross mismanagement on the, on the or certainly gross risk man, mismanagement of the risk side, and, and clearly something happened there, um, and we don't know what. At the risk of propagating rumours, there's been suggestions that because venture capital, some venture capitalists were very close to Silicon Valley Bank, they had an idea that the capital position had deteriorated. It was thinking about fundraising. And these were the same guys who then went to their investing company and said, hey, maybe you better shift funds out. Was there some hint of inside information or conflicts of interest? I don't know, but there's certainly that suggestion out there. And I think that will be interesting to see if anything comes out of that in due course. I'm slightly curious to say about a counterfactual. If Silicon Valley had actually just raised, bank had just raised this capital, would we be talking about this? I'm not convinced. On the other hand, if reimbursement was such a screw-up, maybe it would just have deferred the inevitable. I don't know. And the other question, which is perhaps more philosophical, is in the internet age, is it actually easier to start a bank run? I could go into my bank accounts at the end of the podcast and take all my money out in an instant. I don't need to go and queue at the bank. I don't need to wait for bank opening hours. Is that making bank runs more easier. I don't know. And should we be concerned about that? Again, don't know. So where are we? Well, I think the good news is that I think we're largely through the crisis. Certainly in the UK, HSBC have stepped in. In the US, everything seems to be transferred across the FDIC. It's kind of up and running again. Clearly, there's been one or two short-term things. There'll be some payments that have been missed this weekend. This week, um, if anyone's actually missed their paychecks, um, I feel sorry for them. But they should still have their jobs, and the company should still be, should be able to make that up. Complete crisis has hopefully been desert, been uh, averted. There's possibly some still long, longer-term issues. As I say, I think Silicon Valley Bank will leave a gap in the market, but that could be an opportunity for somebody. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. So I hope you enjoyed this. Bit of a monologue from me, but it's an area that I've been watching with interest and I'm sure you've been picking up stuff too. Hopefully that's brought some insight into what's going on. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonco.com forward slash podcast. 
If you like what you hear, then please give the review with lots of stars in your podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on good, all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at acquires at harmonco.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time.